Morning, everybody. There is this weird substance that kind of pops up all over the Bible in a ton of different places, Old Testament and New Testament, called myrrh. That's something you probably heard of for sure in the Christmas story and some others, but it's actually in the Old Testament as well as the New. And here's the thing about myrrh. First time you see it, hold on, let's see if this clicker, yeah, we got it. Did you do that, Michael, or did I do it? Okay, cool, it's working. New clicker, people. The first time you see myrrh in the Bible is in the book of Genesis. Joseph gets sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, and the slave traders who are traveling, who they sell him to, are also carrying myrrh with them to Egypt. The author goes out of his way to say that that's happening. Later on, more significantly, in the construction of the temple, myrrh becomes a key ingredient in both the sacred incense and the sacred anointing oil of the temple. It's in other places as well. Those are a couple of prominent ones. In the ancient world, it was a really significant thing. It was this this resin that was produced by um, damaging the skin of a family of thorny bushes and trees. You would damage the skin, bruise the skin, and what came out was this sticky resin that smelled sweet and had all of these different properties that the ancient world prized it for. So you would make perfume with it, like I said, anointing oil, incense, but it was also used medicinally. It was thought that if you drink it in a drink that it would give you like an analgesic or anti-inflammatory response. So it was used in medicines. Um, Probably most famously used in Egypt and other ancient cultures as part of embalming rituals. So when someone died and you were preparing their body for burial and for the afterlife specifically, you would use myrrh. The New Testament, like I said a minute ago, you have it really famously, probably most famously, in the story of Jesus' birth. The wise men come and one of the gifts they give is myrrh, that exact same substance. But it pops up again later in Jesus' life in multiple places. Once, when Jesus is on the cross, as he dies, he's offered wine mixed with myrrh, probably for that medicinal reason. And then after he dies, when they go to bury his body, in the Gospel of John, it says they use a large amount of myrrh as they anoint his body. So myrrh, both in the ancient world and in the Bible, has this association with life death, and rebirth. It's how you prepare for the afterlife. And in the life of Jesus, you have it there at his birth, at his death, and his burial, and therefore at his resurrection. Now, we're in a series right now called Seven Letters to the Church. Today, we're going to look at the second letter, and it's a letter written to a city whose name is the Greek word for myrrh, Smyrna. This is the entire letter. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's just four verses, but you can tell just from looking at it, it's got more than enough to occupy our time this morning. And as is pretty much always the case with these letters, there are details about the historical situation of the church receiving the letter and the city that they were a part of that are integrated into the letter. And certain aspects of the letter come to life when you know what's going on in that city. In this city in particular, which shares the name Myrrh. Now, um, it's important to note that in Smyrna, you don't actually have like any necessarily, in fact, most scholars think there's not like a real 
etiological connection between the word myrrh and the substance myrrh and the name Smyrna. But early, early on, even hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, ancient thinkers are already making connections between the history of Smyrna and its name. So even if it's like an accident of naming, already from the beginning, you have people saying, based on the history that Smyrna experienced that we're going to talk about in a second, Smyrna has the absolute perfect name. It is a city of myrrh. Smyrna is a very prominent city in Asia Minor, about 40 miles from Ephesus. So it kind of makes sense that it's the second stop on the letter-writing tour. Um, And it's incredibly prominent and known for three kind of primary categories of thought. You can think of Smyrna as a place known for beauty, suffering, and loyalty. The first one's beauty, and that's still true even today. This is the modern city of Izmir, which is what Smyrna eventually became. This is in Turkey. And you can see even now, like that's a beautiful city. Just its position naturally in this bay is absolutely gorgeous. And the people who built Smyrna didn't just leave it like a natural beauty. They also constructed all the architecture to be like, perfect and symmetrical and to complement the natural, beautiful setting. There's still a bunch of ancient ruins there that you can go visit now. I like this picture because it really shows like the effort that was put into not just functional architecture, but architecture that is meant to be beautiful. You're supposed to see it and go, this is a place of absolute beauty. This is an artist rendering of what it would have looked like around the time of the book of Revelation. You can see how beautiful it is, why it was called things like the Jewel of Asia Minor or more significantly for today, the crown of Asia Minor, which is the main title that it had. It was also a place of culture. It's said to be the birthplace of Homer, probably the most famous poet in human history. They had a temple to Homer there. They had a massive 20,000-person stadium. You can see it there, kind of in the bottom corner. Gymnasium, athletic contests, pagan temples for every god imaginable, a temple to Rome where you could go and offer incense to Caesar, and uh, paved streets. I mean, they had absolutely everything. And so it was called by ancient thinkers the crown of Asia Minor. Part of why they called it the crown was because it literally looked like a crown. This is a really old picture of Smyrna. And you can see how Mount Pegasus kind of rises out of the ocean and goes up into this promontory where these buildings would have ringed it and would have literally looked like a crown. So if you're approaching Smyrna from far away, you see this crown coming up. But again, ancient minds said, yeah, it looks like a crown, but it's also a very appropriate name for this city because it's so incredibly beautiful and it's something they should like be proud of. And they were. They had a proud history bordering on like an arrogant history, which is the case for a lot of prominent cities in the ancient world. And part of that was because they were known for having suffered and endured greatly and come back over and over and over again. Smyrna, it's a very old history, goes back hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, and it had been destroyed and rebuilt over and over and over again. They had dealt with massive earthquakes we have recorded history of, wars, plagues, fires, like everything you can imagine. The city got destroyed and rebuilt time and time again. So many times that this uh, Athenian general, Aristides, called it the phoenix. He said, this city is like the mythical phoenix, the bird that goes down and dies and then is reborn over and over and over again because they had suffered so greatly and every time they bounced back and came back. And they were proud of that. In the midst of all that suffering, they were known for loyalty as well. They're a city that was incredibly faithful to the Roman Empire. Even before the time of the Roman Empire, they were faithful to the Seleucids that came before Rome. And they were one of those cities where they're not just switching teams. Like, you're on, they're on Rome's team, 
But when there's a war going on and the bad guys roll up, they don't just say, hey, we'll give you whatever we want. We're like, we'll, we'll join your team. They would stand firm and suffer for it because they would actually stay loyal to Rome. They were known for being the very first Roman colony that had a temple to Rome. So like I said before, you could go and offer incense to Caesar, and, and this is like a, you know, a religious way of showing your fealty to the Roman Empire. They're the first city that actually did that. And I, I misspoke. I said you could go and offer incense to Rome. The truth is you had to. Every citizen of the Roman Empire had to do that once a year. And you'd actually get a certificate that said you had done it, and just in case someone accused you of having not done it. So they're known for being beautiful. It's the crown of Asia Minor. They're known for suffering and rebirth, this kind of phoenix image that they, they go down into death but come back better than ever. And then for fierce loyalty to their king. And all of that, I mean, some of you, just from the fact that we read the letter already, some of you are already seeing how all of that is getting woven into this letter. Let's look at it one verse at a time and just see where all of this comes together. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. All of the letters start with Jesus bringing in some aspect of his description from chapter one, and usually something that has like specifically to do with the content of the letter that he's giving. And so in this case, he brings in from verse one or verse 17 of chapter one, that he is the first and the last who died and came to life. And you can already kind of see what he's doing, right? Like this is establishing the theme for the entire letter. He starts by saying he's the first and the last. We talk in week one about how this is something that in the ancient Greco-Roman world was said of Zeus, the kind of chief god of the Greek pantheon. Zeus was the first and last. So John is here engaging in like this, this counter-religious propaganda that, no, Zeus isn't the first and the last. Jesus is first and the last. But it has a Jewish history too. Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 48 both call Yahweh the first and the last. So this is a very straightforward claim that Jesus is God. He's greater than Zeus, and he's the God of the Hebrew people. But then he says, I'm the one who died and came to life. I told you at the beginning that the connection between Smyrna and Myrrh, that name connection, was noticed early on by ancient Greco-Roman thinkers. And they would look at Smyrna and say, this city is the city of like death and burial and afterlife, like death and return, death and return. And so it's appropriate that it's named Smyrna. And here Jesus starts off the letter by saying, I am the one who actually has done that, who has actually gone into death and come back. It's interesting, um, there's an early Christian named Clement of Alexandria who also compares Jesus to the phoenix. He says the phoenix is a great symbol of Jesus because of the death and resurrection imagery. And Clement, weirdly, says that the phoenix would make its nest using frankincense and myrrh. And he just says that like that's a thing that everybody already knew. Pretty weird. But Jesus is setting the tone for the entire letter. He goes, you need to know, based on everything else I'm about to tell you, you need to know that I'm the one who died and came back to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus has nothing bad to say about this church. Um, of the seven letters, the vast majority of them, Jesus has some kind of rebuke or warning for them. This church and one other church receive no rebuke, only commendation. Jesus only has good stuff to say. He doesn't only have good news. He's giving, you can already see, he's, he's building up to giving them stern, like scary warnings about what's gonna happen. But as far as their character as a church, he's got nothing bad to say. 
He goes, you've been suffering tribulation and poverty. John, who's writing down this message from Jesus, introduced himself in chapter one as John, your fellow partaker in the tribulation. So John has experienced persecution. If you read the seven letters, like all these churches are experiencing persecution. But when you read the letter to Smyrna, you get the sense that like they've got it worse than anybody. If you think about the content of some of the other letters, especially the letter we looked at last week, Ephesus, you get the sense that maybe Smyrna is suffering worse persecution because they have not capitulated. They haven't compromised with the society around them. Remember, Jesus told the church at Ephesus, you guys are doing a lot of good stuff, but your love for me has grown cold. You've lost the love you had at first. You need to do the things you used to do. He doesn't say that to Smyrna. He just goes, you guys are suffering tribulation. And you'll see in the next verse, it's, it's going to get worse. He tells them, I know of your poverty, but you're rich. In the seventh letter, Jesus is going to say the exact opposite to a different church. You guys think you're rich, but you're actually spiritually poor. Here he's telling them, you are materially poor. You have nothing. It's a very difficult place to be a Christian, clearly. And they're suffering. They're materially poor. They've got no resources. But he says, you're actually rich in the way that matters the most. And I just want you to picture for a second, like when I hear that, the first thing I imagine is being the Christian in Smyrna receiving that letter. You're suffering. The community you're a part of doesn't accept you. You're experiencing persecution. Things are heating up. You've got no material resources. And the message from Jesus is, hey, brother, sister, you are rich. You're rich in the way that actually matters. And there's this really difficult sentence the slander, that word could, is, is actually the Greek word for blasphemy, the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So a complicated situation historically. In the early church, in the first century, there was an incredible amount of tension between the first Christians and the Jewish community in all of these different cities. But what you need to know, this is the most important fundamental thing, is that this difference, this difference is like like the understatement of the year. This tension and this difficulty that developed was not remotely about race or ethnicity. The vast majority of the first Christians are Jewish. John, who's writing this letter, is Jewish. The resurrected Jesus, who is dictating the letter to John, is Jewish. So this is not about ethnic Jews and, non, and people who are not. That's not the tension. This is a religious tension. Christians came out of the Jewish religion. They said, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. We accept him as such. And the rest of the Jewish community said, we do not agree, to, you know, to put it mildly, right? And so as these tensions develop, you start getting massive problems for the church as a result. The, what's probably happening in Smyrna, in fact, we know historically this happened in Smyrna, later than this. I mentioned earlier that when you go to the temple to Rome in the ancient world, you have to offer incense to Caesar, you can worship whatever other gods you want, but you have to show your loyalty to Rome by offering incense to Caesar at least once a year. The only people group that didn't have to do that was the Jewish people group because they worshiped one God and they had a reputation in the Roman Empire that if you try to take that away from them, they will die for it. So Caesar had decided very wisely, this one group gets this special dispensation for me. They don't have to offer incense to Rome, but they're the only ones who don't have to. Now, when Christianity starts, they're all Jewish, so they can continue to kind of be under that covering. But as the tension develops and the distance between these two groups grows, you actually have the Jewish people turning to the Christians and saying, these guys are not with us. 
And so our special treatment from Rome should not apply to them. Now think about this. It says a synagogue of Satan. What's Satan mean? Anybody know? What's that, what does that title mean? You guys are being shy. I know you know it. The accuser. Yeah, I was hoping for that creepy whisper when half the room says it, but quietly, the accuser. I'd be extra creepy with this one too. The accuser. A synagogue of accusers. What's probably happening in this situation? These guys are not really Jewish. So they should be punished if they don't offer incense to Caesar. We know that happens later in places like Smyrna. That's probably what's happening here. So again, it's fundamentally, it's not a racial issue. It's a religious issue. It's that the Christians are not, they're no longer part of the same group, and so they're suffering for it, and there's a massive amount of tension, and the synagogues in the city are literally becoming like places of opposition to the Christianity, to God's rule and God's movement in this place and time. This is where things get gnarly. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Whenever a number gets thrown out in Revelation, your natural instinct, if you know the book, is to be like, what does this mean symbolically? And that's right, for the most part. In a section like this, though, especially in the seven letters, um, there's probably a more concrete meaning behind this 10 days. If it means anything symbolically, it just means like a short, discrete period of time. And that makes the most sense if you actually understand like how imprisonment worked in the Roman Empire at this time. There's only three reasons people get imprisoned in the Roman Empire. The first one is you're just going to get like a slap on the wrist imprisonment in order to teach you a lesson so you won't do whatever you did. The second one is so that you could await your trial, which wouldn't go drag on for years and years like it does now often. And the third one is you would go to prison for 10 days while you waited for your execution. It wasn't always exactly 10 days but a short period of time, while you waited to be executed. Now, given the overall like, tone of this letter and the overall points that Jesus is making, almost certainly that's what's in view here. You've been suffering persecution. You're materially poor, and everything's about to get worse. You're going to get thrown in prison, 10 days of tribulation, and then many of you are going to die. That's the message. That's, this is grim. It's grim stuff. Everything's bad. You're suffering. It's going to get worse. The enemy, the adversary is going to throw you in prison and many of you are going to die. But look what he starts this sentence with. Do not fear. If you're reading this letter and you're a Smyrnan Christian, aren't you going like, what? Why? Like, how can you? Hey, don't be afraid you're all going to get arrested and die. Like that's, that's what's being communicated. Don't fear. Everything's about to get worse. The devil is going to throw you in prison and many of you are going to be executed, but don't be afraid. The key to understanding this letter is in understanding why Jesus says, do not fear. If you miss the reason, which is coming next in the final verse of the letter, if you miss the reason that Jesus says, do not fear, you will not understand this letter, and you will not get the lesson that the modern church in the West desperately needs from this letter. Do not fear. Here's why. Be faithful unto death. Akrithanatu means up to and including death. So it's not like an expression. It literally means like up to and including the point that you die. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. First, you have this idea of faithfulness, which again speaks to like the historical situation in Smyrna. Smyrna is a city known for faithfulness to the point of suffering and death. And so Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, this is what you're being called to, be faithful to the point of death. And if you do that, if you're faithful to the point of the first death, you will not be hurt by the second death. This is something that comes up multiple times in Revelation. There's like three other times later in the book where the second death gets mentioned. And what the second death is, is every human being dies and they await resurrection. Then they're resurrected, judgment happens, and those who are not found in Christ go to the second death. And let me tell you, the imagery in the book of Revelation associated with the second death is horrible stuff. You have to picture the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and like sulfur and fire and brimstone falling from heaven. That's the kind of images that the later sections of Revelation will invoke to talk about the second death. It's eternal punishment. That's what the second death is. I told first service I was really proud to realize as I was preaching, this is my first time saying fire and brimstone in a sermon. Um, And that's a big moment in every preacher's life when you do actual fire and brimstone. So I'm very happy you were all here to experience that with me. Um, I'll be threatening you all with that later. Just stick around. No, I'm just kidding. But think about this. Think about this. Second death. What does that mean in the context of Revelation? It's a Jewish idea before that, by the way. You have the first death. You await resurrection. Then what happens? Well, those who are not found in Christ experience the eternal punishment, images of eternal fire, the fire and brimstone that consumes Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the second death. And so what does Jesus say? Be faithful unto the first death. Because if you do, those who endure, those who conquer, will be spared from the second death. It's pretty powerful. But there's this image that gets thrown into that top line that like once you see it, it just opens up this entire world of symbolic resonance. I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. If you're in Smyrna, the idea of receiving a crown has like layers and layers and layers of symbolic meaning. The first and most obvious one is just that Smyrna was called the crown of Asia Minor. Like that's what the city's called. The city literally looks like a crown and it's known as the crown of Asia Minor because it's so beautiful. But there's a second meaning. And to understand this one, you gotta know that there's actually two different Greek words for crown. The first one is the word diadema, diadem. And that's when you picture a crown, like when I said crown, what you pictured in your head is a diadem. That's the like, you know, the medieval crown with jewels and metal. It's the crown of rule. It's the ruling crown, the crown the king wears. That's not the word here. The word here is the Greek word stephanos. And stephanos means crown of victory or wreath of victory because the stephanos was a leaf crown. So this is Julius Caesar wearing a stephanos. If you've ever been to Little Caesars, you've seen a stephanos on that little cartoon guy too. Same thing. That's the same guy. He just sells pizza now ever since his betrayal by Brutus. So that's the Stephanos. It's, it's, the, it's the wreath of victory. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's translated crown. Sometimes it's translated wreath. But it's a wreath of leaves you would wear on your head. And it was a, a thing given to people for a variety of reasons. It was the prize for athletic victory. So if you win an athletic competition, which Smyrna was known for, you would receive a Stephanos to show that you had conquered, you had won. 
But you also could receive them um, because of like civic honors or military honors. Like if you were particularly impressive in some way or you had achieved something, either in the civic world or in the military world, you would have a Stephanos conferred upon you. What's super interesting is that in the ancient world, there's all this evidence that most of the time, the Stephanos for that reason, like the, the reason of like great honor in the military world, that was typically done posthumously. So after the person had died, they would receive the Stephanos. So the idea of receiving a crown of victory for enduring and conquering is all over the ancient world. And then it's also used as a metaphor all over the New Testament. There's just a few examples. Look how much this resonates with what Jesus just said. Endure, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the Stephanos of life. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable Stephanos but we an imperishable. You see the idea? The prize for Christian endurance is not a perishable like leaf crown, but an imperishable Stephanos. James, this is incredible because this is like the exact same language. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Think about Smyrna. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the Stephanos of life, which God has promised to those who love him. It's like the exact same message Jesus just gave the church in Smyrna, right? If you're faithful, if you endure, I will give you the Stephanos of life. Same exact phrase in Greek. Paul of himself in 2 Timothy, this is when Paul's near the end of his life. He's going to die soon. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the Stephanos of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see that? It's the same promise that just got made in Revelation. That's just three examples. There's more in the New Testament. The idea here is, though you endure, you're faithful to the end, God will give you the Stephanos. And that's where we come to the third resonance that I actually think is the most powerful and the most significant. So if you were in Smyrna, or any prominent city like that, but we know this happened a lot in Smyrna, you would regularly receive visitations from like important dignitaries. So you'd have like, like Caesar himself might come or governors might come or military generals might come. And when a significant potentate like that, like somebody who's a, a serious dignitary, when they arrive, their arrival in Greek was called their parousia. That's a Greek word that literally just means arrival, but it became like a technical term for the royal arrival of someone of great significance. Now in Smyrna, the crown of Asia Minor, when one of these dignitaries would arrive, they were known for taking a collection. People would have to contribute money in order to create a golden Stephanos. It's a crown of leaves, but made out of gold that would be presented to Caesar at his parousia. So think about this image. The king of Rome arrives. What happens in Smyrna? Everybody has to contribute so that we can offer Caesar a golden Stephanos. What's Jesus saying? Be faithful unto death and at my parousia, which by the way is the term the New Testament uses over and over and over again to talk about the second coming of Jesus. When the real king of heaven and earth arrives, the king crowned with the eternal diadem of heaven and earth, the ruling crown, when he arrives, he's not gonna take a Stephanos from you. He's not gonna receive the Stephanos. When the true king of heaven and earth comes, he gives the Stephanos to those who endure faithfully. And how powerful is that image? How different from the Roman way of doing things and the Roman way of looking at power? 
Jesus comes and says, at my parousia, I have a Stephanos for you. I have a crown of victory for you. You can see the symmetry throughout this letter. Very short letter, but it starts with the words of the first and last who died and came to life, death and life. In the middle there, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And then at the very end, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus is saying, very simply, you're suffering, things are hard, they're going to get worse, many of you will die, but don't be afraid because I, look at the beginning and the end, I died and came back to life. And I am promising you that if you endure and if you entrust yourself to me, so will you. And guys, all of this in a city that's called myrrh, a city that already before the time of Jesus was associated with death and rebirth, with the idea of this this ointment that's put on the bodies of the dead to prepare them for the afterlife. Jesus says, listen, endure, be strong. It's gonna be okay. And here's the key. It's going to be okay, not because I'm going to get you out of this, but because even if the worst happens in this life, you won't be harmed by the second death. See the difference? Jesus does not write a letter that says, Smyrnans, they're going to try to kill you, but I won't let them. He says, they're going to try to kill you, and they're totally going to do it. But don't be afraid, because the second death won't hurt you. And what this should make us ask as Christians in a much easier place to be Christians than Smyrna in the first century, what this should make us ask is, are we spending our entire lives afraid of the wrong thing? I mean, think about how much we fear death, how much we intuitively think of death as the end, right? That's how we talk about it. We spend a lot of time consciously and unconsciously trying to not think about it, trying to avoid it. We put a lot of energy and effort into fighting it off. We're afraid of the wrong thing. If you believe this book, guys, hear me on this. If you believe this book, your first death is not the end. But if you live here, if you live in the modern Western world, your default that you have to fight against is to think of death as the end of everything. And it simply isn't. And just understand, that's the Christian worldview, but that's also the worldview of basically every single person for all of human history until about five minutes ago, historically speaking. Everyone believed, and Christians still believe, that when you die, that is not the end. And the thing you fear isn't the first death, it's the second death. And the thing you put your hope in is not rescue from the first death or comfort in this life, but victory over the second death because Jesus has conquered death. So what kind of comfort do you seek from God? Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to deliver you from the things you're suffering in this life, but that's not what you hang your hope on as a Christian. The church in Smyrna is this incredibly powerful example of the fact that you may not get delivered from the thing you're scared of in this life. You might not. The worst case scenario might actually happen to you. Jesus writes a letter saying, that's gonna happen to a lot of you, but don't be afraid. Not because I'm going to save you from the first death, but because I'm going to save you from the second death. I just want to ask you, like, what would we be like as Christians if we really deeply believed that, like in our bones believed that, that the first death isn't the end, and that if we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we'll be safe from the second death? If you want to know what that looks like, all you have to do is go back to Smyrna and fast forward 60 or 70 years. 
and learn the story of this guy. It's a cool looking guy, solid beard. That's Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Um, talk about like early, early Christian. This is the second generation of Christian leaders after the apostles. Polycarp was a friend and disciple of John who wrote the letter. So think about this. As a young man, this is attested by two different ancient Christian authors, that Polycarp was converted by apostles and that he was discipled by John himself. So this guy, as a young man, that was his life. Then he went to Smyrna and became the bishop of Smyrna. So almost certainly, just think about this. John receives a vision from Jesus. Send this letter to Smyrna. The letter arrives at Smyrna. And who receives it? Polycarp, who knows him personally. Now, can you imagine how precious that letter was to Polycarp and the rest of the Christians in Smyrna? Hey, I know it's hard and it's going to get worse, but Jesus says, Hold fast, be tough, be strong, endure, conquer. I've got a crown of life for you. You won't be hurt by the second death. You can just imagine Polycarp like, like you'd memorize it. It's four verses. You'd memorize it. You'd think about it as you suffered. Polycarp was faithful in Smyrna for decades and decades. And at the end of his life, the people of Smyrna turned on him. He was accused of atheism, which was a common thing for early Christians because they only worshiped one God and they were no longer getting that special dispensation from Rome that the, the people of Israel got. And so they came to Polycarp and said, there's this like chilling quote where they say, bring us the atheist, bring us Polycarp. And they bring him to the top of Mount Pegasus, the crown. And they tell him, burn incense for Caesar or die. Offer incense to Caesar, show your loyalty to Rome, or we're going to kill you. You've got to worship Caesar, or you're going to burn. Build up a pyre. All these sticks are stacked up. You're going to burn to death. And this is what Polycarp said. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, for you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come do what you will. Does that sound like a guy who's read that letter a time or two? They're stacking up sticks to burn him alive. And he goes, what? You're threatening me with a first death? Do your worst. 86 years I've been faithful. I'm not going to stop conquering now. I'm not going to stop enduring now. I'm not afraid of the fire that's going to burn me and then go out later today. The fire I'm thinking about is the everlasting fire of the second death that my God has promised me victory over. So I'm not afraid of you offering the first death to me. Go ahead. Come do what you will. Can you imagine the courage involved in this moment? And they killed him. They burned him. There's all these crazy stories about the fire like keeps going out and won't burn him so they have to stab him, but they kill him. And here's the thing. If you believe Revelation 2, Polycarp didn't die that day. Polycarp conquered that day. And he's waiting for the wreath. What's amazing is we have a letter. It's actually what this is from. We have a letter from the church in Smyrna to a church in a city called Philomelium. And they talk about the martyrdom of Polycarp. And in it, there's all this, there's just one example, there's all this language that's like pulled straight from the letter to Smyrna. Look at this. 
They say of Polycarp in his death, he was crowned with the crown of immortality. You see it? And carried off the unspeakable prize. He got the Stephanos because he endured to the end, because he conquered. Now, what happens in a community, in a city, in the world when Christians are like that? Smyrna is in Turkey. It's Izmir now. Turkey's a tough place to be a Christian. Um, there was a point where there's the population of Turkey was 25% Christian. Did you know that? And not like a long, long time ago, like early 20th century, like the 1920s, 25% Christian. But um, kind of stuff you don't really learn about in history class, there was four different genocides in Turkey that happened between then and now, last hundred years, and uh, focused against Christians. And so today in Turkey, the Christian population is less than 1%. They just killed them all from 25% to less than 1%. But if you go to Izmir today, Smyrna, you know what you'll find? Dozens of churches and thousands of Christians because they have obeyed Revelation 2 for 2,000 years. They keep enduring. They keep conquering generation after generation. They try to kill them and they keep doing what Jesus told the Smyrnan Christians to do 2,000 years ago. And today, there's thousands of Christians there still. That's not the case for every city that these letters go to. So, if Polycarp can live like that, and if the Christians in Smyrna and Izmir can live like that, then surely we can endure the relatively minor persecutions and sufferings that we deal with for being Christians in this life. Now I know, because I know some of you, um, there are people in the room who've actually experienced real persecution for being a Christian. But that's the minority around here. Most of us, it's small stuff. And here's the thing, I actually don't like to minimize that because it's, it's all we know, right? Like, we're not comparing it to like burning alive like Clement or something. And so it's still hard, it's hard for us. But the message here is, what do you do when you suffer for your faith in big ways and small ways? What do you do? You endure. Your loved ones think you're weird for the stuff you believe. You endure that. You conquer. You abide with Christ and he with you and you endure. What happens if you're like treated a little bit weird at work because people know you're a Christian and they associate that with a bunch of stuff they don't like? You endure that. And if things around here change, in our generation or the next generation or the next generation, we pray this doesn't happen, but if, if we end up in a situation where there's real persecution against Christians here, what will we do, brothers and sisters? What will you do? You endure. Because the one who endures conquers. And the one who conquers gets the Stephanos of life from the King of Kings. Now, there's one other New Testament example of a Stephanos that I didn't show you yet. And it has to do with the question, where does Jesus get the Stephanos that he offers you? What does he do to acquire the crown of life that he can offer to all who put their trust in him? This is from the section in Matthew's gospel when Jesus is being beaten and humiliated by the Roman soldiers. It says, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a Stephanos of thorns, They put it on his head 
and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Jesus offers you the Stephanos of life because he wore the Stephanos of death. He offers you the crown of eternal life because he wore the crown of thorns. That's why the letter starts with, I died and came to life. You want to be someone who can receive the message, do not fear the death that's coming? You better hear that message from someone who has been dead and come back to life. Someone who has endured. When Clement goes to the fire, he goes to the fire to suffer for a God who has already suffered for him. And that's the truth for every single Christian. Jesus does not ask you to do something that he hasn't already done for you. And so when he says, endure, conquer, it's because he has already done that on our behalf. Amen? love to invite you to stand with me as we remember together the action in history 2,000 years ago that makes the offer of a crown of life real. Jesus entered into death, died with it, and rose victorious over it. And he offers to share that victory with anyone who will entrust themselves to him.